So good, guys. Thank you very much. Um, good morning, everyone. That was me doing that. Sorry, Brian. I think I was clicking this thing, yeah, in my hand, holding it wrong. So just go back to the title slide if you could. Thanks, bro. Well, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for uh, coming today again. If you're uh, just visiting today, glad you guys are with us. Um, I think Peter was saying we are in a series right now in the book of Galatians. So uh, if you know where that is in the Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't, uh, check out the table of contents in your Bibles in front of you if you would like. Uh, it's pretty much towards the rear end of the Bible, uh, the middle of the New Testament, uh, the last third of the Bible or so. I'll uh, catch up to speed here in a second and uh, via this kind of first part of this. We've been introducing the book for a couple of weeks now. It's our third week and it's going to take us through mid-December, so we'll be in it for some time. A six-chapter book. Uh, it's one of the letters of the Apostle Paul, we call them, or the Pauline epistles or letters. Uh, one of the letters he wrote to um, the churches that he helped found and uh, start in many cases. Galatia, though, is a region, not a city, so a little different uh, in relation to some of the other letters he writes in the New Testament, which are to cities or churches in cities, like the book of Philippians written to the church in Philippi. Uh, Galatia is a larger region, so there's a bunch of churches in this region that the Apostle Paul's writing to, back to. Uh, he had just planted these churches, actually, or a series of them on his missionary journey through the region about a year or two prior to this, and he's hearing about issues, theological issues that are arising in these churches, which is the occasion or context for a lot of his letters. Uh, sometimes it's general encouragement. Sometimes it's he has a need if he's in prison and he's writing back to these uh, churches to kind of ask for help or assistance or just wants to encourage them, uh, thinking maybe his life's kind of drawing to, uh, drawing to a close, his ministry is kind of coming to a close. In this book, uh, he is, um, and Peter was kind of getting at this before that last song, but he starts the book with an expression of what I think is probably best described as loving anger. So anger rightly placed, but loving anger for people he really cares about, but anger over the, the, the situation in the churches that, that's arising theologically over uh, them kind of withdrawing from a true, the true gospel, the centerpiece of the faith that they came to know Jesus Christ through, abandoning that as they entertain these false teachers or agitators or infiltrators' uh, teachings who are coming into these churches saying that Jesus isn't quite enough. And so as we, as we said last week, uh, the, the threat in these churches theologically is not subtracting from the Gospels, but adding to it. So subtracting would be someone coming in, even to Hiawatha here, and saying the Bible isn't true, or Jesus didn't rise from the dead, or he didn't die for our sins, or we can't take his words at face value. That would be to subtract from the Gospel, but... Uh, the threat in adding to it is to say, all of that's good and true and, and beautiful. We're acknowledging that, but you also need to do this. You also need to believe this. You also have to abstain from this and on a required basis. So it, it's not um, an issue simply of moral ethic kind of creeping into the church because Christians do have an ethic. And we'll talk about that today. Good works are a part of the faith. But it is to mess with the center. It is to mess with what Jesus did for us on the cross by saying, not quite sufficient. You also have to, on a required basis, on a, on a before God, you have to do this to be saved basis teaching. And so those were, that was the threat, whether, whether they're called wolves or uh, agitators or, uh, as uh, this book calls them, the circumcision party. So a, a big issue the way this came out in, in a big way in the first century was Jewish Christians saying to Gentile or non-Jewish Christians, you have to be circumcised as well. Uh, you need to keep the Old Testament moral law, uh, laws, including circumcision. That'll, uh, we'll talk more about that today. 
uh, as we already have been in this series. So um, that's a little bit of a recap on where we've been. We'll talk more about this book. He's actually still kind of introducing the, the book in a way, he, opening arguments of sorts, expressing his concern, his anger against bad theology, which robs Jesus of glory, and it robs his people of joy, and it actually threatens their very salvation itself. Uh, when we abandon Christ, we abandon our only hope. And so uh, his, his kind of righteous, loving anger uh, t- towards his, 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 these, these churches and the circumstances is kind of unique to Galatians, uh, but it's also a, a help for us as Christians too, who, or people who aren't Christians yet, uh, but in this very room, who are trying to understand what Christianity really is and what the threats to it really are. And where our righteous anger can come in, when we hear about bad teaching or false teaching or things that kind of sound kind of good, but aren't gospel, you know, kind of good, but when they're added to grace, become, uh, in a false sense, gospel things, and therefore uh, really threaten our our faith and our perseverance in that that faith. So we'll say more as we go on here, uh, but Galatians uh, 1 one eleven to two ten is is today's passage. We'll look at more of Paul's story today. We've already done that in this series. We're going to expand more and just kind of talk about what happened uh, in his conversion and kind of after his conversion, and how all of that helps kind of undergird the idea that we're saved by grace, not by works. And Jesus Christ and His grace actually is sufficient. It's all we need. God's love for us is power, and it's joy, and it's. It's our salvation, and it's, and it's goodness, and it's enough. And we can count on it, and it will never change. And to add to that is to bring ourselves into the equation. And Paul's story undergirds, underlines, uh, further points to that, that whole idea of what a true gospel is, and then contrarily what a false gospel is too. So we'll talk about that more today. So let's read this uh, in full today. This is our longest section of uh, the whole series will be what we're looking at right here, kind of one flow of thought pulling from last week, if you were here, uh, in, from verses 6 to, uh, 6 to 10. So let's read this in full. Uh, Galatians 1, 11 to 2, 10. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, 
the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right, so how about that for a series of run-on sentences right there? Huh? Um, that was hard to read. <laughs> okay. Uh, a couple things on this last sentence. We're not going to talk about 210 as much today. We'll come up later in the series. But when uh, Paul talks here about uh, the apostles asking him and, and his associates to remember the poor, the very thing he was eager to do, he's talking uh, not just about a, a broad ethic here of remembering poor people anywhere he goes, though it wouldn't be wrong to think about it in those terms, but specifically, as the New Testament says elsewhere, to care for poorer Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so there, there are other aspects of Paul's letters where he's kind of recycling through some of these churches he helped to plant and going through a financial campaign of sorts, asking richer Gentile non-Jewish Christians, you have more money, to give money to poor Jewish Christians as a display of unity and love for other brothers who believe the same gospel but who are very different from they are culturally and ethnically and, and things like that. And so there is this kind of general call here for Christians to love poorer Christians in their churches, poorer Christians that they know maybe in their city or beyond. Uh, not that this can't be a broader ethic to care for the poor in general. It displays a lot of great things about God's care for us as spiritually poor people. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the ethic you see in 2 Corinthians 8, for example, is where Paul says, God, who is the, the richest of, of rich beings in, in the universe, became poor so that we might become rich spiritually. He lowered himself. He, he suffered. He kind of emptied himself, Philippians 2 says. He became poor so that we might become rich in grace. And so he says because of that, when Christians are moved, they look out for the poor among themselves and also beyond, and, and they give. Because God shows no partiality. And, and, and to reflect the fact that God cares for the outcast. God cares for the poor. God cares for the disenfranchised. God cares for the sinner. So spiritually speaking, sinners are, are spiritually poor people. And that's the, whole, that's the centerpiece of the gospel. It's not about money, it's about sin. And God addresses that spiritual poverty when he dies for us. And so 2.10 addresses, the, the addresses this idea. It's, it's an allusion to that. It's kind of a, a hearkening to it that you see more clearly in others of Paul's letters. He's saying, the, the apostles are saying, gather money from these Gentiles that you know well as you travel through Asia Minor and, and, and west and north. Uh, gather money, collect money for the sake of these poorer Jewish Christians who are, who are in trouble. All right, that'll come up a little bit later in the book too, at least by principle, uh, but for now I want to at least mention this because we're not going to talk about it as much today. 
But here's the big question I want to address today. Why in the world is he sharing all of this? That's my big question anyway, so, and I'm preaching it, so I guess I get to ask it and answer it, hopefully. Uh, but maybe you ask that too. Why is he sharing all of this? It, sound, it seems maybe a little bit out of place for maybe, maybe what you know about others of Paul's letters. This is a little bit unique. He does go into kind of biographical mode, autobiographical mode sometimes in his letters when he writes about his stories and he dresses people by name and, and you know, his love for certain individuals and how they came to him in his time of aid and all of that. But the length of this is kind of unique. So why is he sharing all of this, and how does it flow from the occasion of, of the book? And so the answer is, if you've been here, if you've read the book, or you've been here for this series, uh, what you might expect, and that is uh, not really different from what we've been talking about. It's two things. It's one, to continue to underline the fact that the gospel is God's, not man's. So we'll talk about how important that is and how that comes out in his story. And the second thing is to underline the fact that it's by grace, not works. That we're saved by God's good and loving grace, not by what, not by what we do. And so the way he talks about his story and the ways he talks about interactions with other Christians and how that all transpires, how he brings Titus with him and doesn't get, he doesn't get circumcised and all that stuff and many other things here as well, uh, underlines this over and over and over again. Whether it's directly his intent or kind of a secondary uh, type thing that God's intending or, or just this primary thing God's intending, uh, regardless of Paul's intent, these are these two big things that... Uh, answers to this question, uh, why is he sharing his story? So the first thing we'll talk about is, again, to continue to underline the fact that the gospel is God's, not man's. In fact, he starts that way. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me to you is not man's gospel. And so this, just to summarize this in three points, there's more to say, but basically what Paul's saying in this whole section all the way through 2.10 is I received the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, direct from divine revelation. So if you weren't here the first week, we looked at the, the corroborating narrative of this in Acts 9, how uh, Paul is, is literally uh, knocked on his back uh, by a revelation of Christ and blinded by this light from heaven, and Jesus speaks to him and says, I am alive, basically, and, and I, I'm, I'm calling you to myself. Now you're my son. What you've been doing has been misguided and wrong, and, and he's converted right there, and through the teaching of these, uh, apost- or these disciples that he goes to hang out with in his blinded state before he receives his sight again uh, shortly thereafter. So, I received the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is to our benefit as sinners from direct divine revelation. Then, I spent time alone after that, 14 years, uh, with some breaks in there, but um, basically alone after that for 14 years. Then, though confident of the vision I received from Jesus, I went to Jerusalem to corroborate with the apostles and to argue for the gospel in a way against those who were teaching a false gospel of requiring circumcision and other forms of law-keeping to be saved. So one of the the phrases, maybe you noticed this come up a couple of times, it can actually seem like a little bit of a shot towards the apostles. I don't think it's meant to be disrespectful, but a couple of times he says, and I brought the gospel and, and my intent to those who seem to be influential. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, you know, just doesn't mince words. But uh, those who kind of seem to be pillars, seem to be influential, uh, he's bringing them down a little bit. God doesn't show partiality. So not, not, not acknowledging their apostolic ministry and, and their role as pillars in the early church and in being those first elders, those first pastors, those first apostles are sent ones to help establish the church, but still saying they're just men. 
And, and when I was saved, though so much beneath them in terms of kind of where I was with God, when God calls, he brings us all to the same level. You know, so anybody in this church, leader or if you're a Christian for a day, you know, it, we're all on the same level. And so we can appear to have, appear to have this place of, uh, you know, of, um, as leaders of, uh, you know, um, being above others or, or status or, uh, or something like that. But in one sense, and le- leadership's the thing. You've got to acknowledge that and it's good. But spiritually before God, you know, Paul's just saying here, we're really no different. So he also says they added nothing. So he didn't go to them and then they fixed his gospel. He didn't, he didn't envision something wrong. Jesus wasn't wrong, obviously, but he didn't hear it wrong. The gospel he, that he received in a private vision was then corroborated by this group of men, these Jewish apostles in Jerusalem. It was the same gospel. And they added nothing. That's an important thing. They, the apostles, didn't change his beliefs. They didn't add anything to... uh, And he didn't go for that reason either. He wasn't doubting. He went just to corroborate, get backing in his ministry to the Gentiles, get their backing, and otherwise argue for the gospel against these false teachers who were adding things to Jesus when they shouldn't have. So now, as he does all of this, he makes a, a, really a, a strong defense for the truthfulness of the gospel as well, uh, from, uh, or apologetic for the gospel from a couple of angles. First is his, uh, his own story. He does this by citing back to his own story in verses 23 and 24, basically saying, uh, I used to kill Christians. Now I not only preach the gospel, but I suffer for it. Which, which is shocking. So it's not just an idea switch. He so much believed this in, the, in, in this thing now, this worldview, this, this perspective on what God is doing in the world, on this Christ, that he actually suffers for it. That's going all in. When you suffer for something, when you take blows, when you're stoned, when you're hated, when you lose family over something, when your family kind of disowns you over things, I mean, that's going all in. For something. That's what Paul did. He, he lists this out, some of his letters. That's just a few of the things. He suffered greatly for the cause of advancing the gospel around the world. And so, but it's a great switch. He used to kill Christians, murder them. He says here, violently uh, opposed and persecuted Christians or the church of God, imprisoning them, murdering them, trying to squash it and destroy it. Now it's, it's this complete 180. And so as we talk about a defense for the gospel, when, when he says this here, the, the apologetic principle here is that proponents of something who previously were against that one thing tend to speak with an added layer of authority on the subject. So it, it's like whenever we see someone say something like, I'm a Packer fan, but man, did the Vikings get unjustly penalized on that play, you know, or something like that. Uh, it, or I'm conservative, but whoa, these liberals have a point. Or I'm liberal, but man, these conservatives, actually, they're probably right here. It kind of, assuming that they're not just saying that, right? I mean, if, if they're actually genuine, if people are actually genuine in saying, I'm over here, but actually now I'm over here. It's not, not the same thing, of course, as what Paul's doing, because Paul's converting, but it's the feel of that. It kind of takes the perceived bias out of a person. When you're able to say something like that in that way, it takes the perceived bias out. And you tend to sometimes, even if maybe we shouldn't, so this isn't necessarily, necessarily saying we should do that, but even, even, if we, even if we shouldn't, we just do. Some of that perceived bias is taken out, and maybe we just want to listen more. And their words have more weight. So it's the same for Paul. Actually, a, a couple of weeks ago, um, 
Maybe some of you guys heard about uh, this guy, Nabil Qureshi, who just passed away at the age of 34, untimely death from stomach cancer, uh, was an, an apologist who worked with Rabbi Zacharias and Rabbi Zacharias Ministries International. Uh, a lot, he's authored guy, wrote, written a couple of books. He was a, uh, a staunch Muslim, uh, born in, uh, basically born as one, uh, raised, he can memorize parts of the Quran when he was five. Uh, amazing story that I can't even really go into now. Just Google the guy and you'll, you'll get uh, some of his. He's, just, he's making news now because he's passed away, sadly, uh, at an early age. Um, but he, he was a, a staunch Muslim who became a Christian, who, whose good friend in college, a Christian man, um, God through him and just through some dreams, actually, that God gave Nabil Qureshi, uh, he converted and became this um, strong defender of Christianity. So this, this 180 switch, I, I share this because it's another example of a Paul-like thing where, and there's many people, I mean, all of us in one sense are in that boat. All of us are opposed to Christ, whether we would say that or not, until we're not, until we cross over. So uh, in one sense, this shouldn't be, there shouldn't be partiality here, but it's okay if there's a little bit. The reality is this guy knew all of the things to say as a Muslim against Christianity, to, to, to argue for Islam and against Christianity, but all of that flipped when, he, when God changed his heart. And he would say, when God appeared in my dreams, and when God worked through this Christian man uh, to debunk uh, the things that I was holding dear and, and is truthful. So, but, but here, here's the issue. Uh, um, how else, this is the apologetic kind of question to this, how else do we explain the Apostle Paul's or Nabil's or, or ours too, but the Apostle Paul's or Nabil's conversion if Jesus isn't actually alive? How else do we explain that switch? You know, both these guys would say it wasn't really an argument, uh, but God threw the argument, but even aside from that, it was Jesus Christ himself who appeared to me and made himself matter and made his gospel beautiful and made it true, made it different than other religious perspectives and worldviews, uh, one of which I used to hold, hold dear. Both these men would, would, uh, would hold dear. So that's the one thing. Paul's story as a Christian murderer turned, I'm going to write half the New Testament now with God's help. It's like, it's like the, the you know, craziest 180 of 180s that God delights in to, uh, to help argue for uh, the faith. Uh, the second is, he, as he's saying here in the story, he received this directly from God. And, and yet, um, it was corroborated by others. So when Paul's saying this, he's saying, I was alone for a while. I received this gospel directly from him. Yet later, it was shared with, corroborated by others, apostles. He didn't yet know, though, at the, as the same gospel, though, they were believing in. So Paul's saying, God revealed this to me and to others. So that we affirm Christianity began with Jesus' historical life, his death, his resurrection, his appearance of the disciples, and the giving of the Holy Spirit before Christ's ascension. That's where Christianity began. Not with Paul's private, uh, private dream or vision. The Christ then, for us then, the Christ who saves us, sometimes privately or individually, is the same Christ who walked this earth. It's the same Jesus who died and was raised. That's really important. In, in all, all in public. It reminded me of these uh, comic-like things. Maybe you guys have seen this going around, uh, put out by Credo House. I know this is hard to read, the small things, but let's, so let, me, let me just read it. How other religions started, uh, is, this is a generalization for sure, but it's basically true. That's why we, why we say this. Uh, pri- someone has a private dream, a private dream about God, or a private angelic encounter about God, 
or a private idea about God, and then that one person tells everyone what he or she saw. Christianity is very different. After a public ministry, Christ was killed publicly. Christ rose from a public tomb publicly. Christ publicly showed himself to the public, and then the public told everyone what they saw. See the, see the difference? And, and this is all under the umbrella of, of uh, if I'm remembering the, uh, the greater article right, is that Christianity is the most falsifiable religion in the world. Meaning, the most, easily th- the most easy religion to say false, to prove false, because it happens so publicly. Just find the body. Right? But, the, but the, 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 the thing is, it didn't. Or the fact is, it wasn't proved false. All of this happened publicly. So it's different than other religions in terms of how it started in its publicness, not privateness, but publicness. But also, it's this most falsifiable thing because of how public it was, and yet it wasn't. All of Jesus' teachings were were proved true, his predictions, his actual death happened, that we couldn't deny that he died and his resurrection. Where's the body? And, and all these people who saw him. I mean, if you just take one person to come out and just say, yeah, you know what, it was a lie. Or all the apostles who gave their lives for this, for this gospel, and, and we could go on. This is a huge bunny trail I don't have time for, so I'm going to bring it back. Um, but the, the point is, Paul's personal experience didn't start Christianity. Paul's personal experience did not start Christianity. Rather, Paul experienced something that Jesus started publicly and historically with his own death and resurrection. So Jesus saves, Jesus reveals, and it's not about us. Or to use Galatians' language, this is not man's gospel. It's not man's gospel. It belongs to God. Like there's one God, there's one gospel and it belongs to him. And Paul's story is this big neon flashing sign of, yep, that's a true statement. Otherwise, none of this would have happened to me in this capacity. It would have looked different. And so he writes. So that's the first thing, is to, is to underline this idea. We've been saying this and will throughout the series. The gospel is God's. It's not, it's not man's. And so, uh, so he writes his story. The second is related to continue to underline the fact that the Christian gospel is all about grace, uh, not works. And, and again, there's three ways we'll, we'll look at this this morning. The first is, again, to look at Paul's story and the way he talks about it. Um, so look, look at this language here. I'm going to read this again. Look at this. Think about this, the implications of this, of this grace for our lives as well. In verse 15, describing his own story and his conversion, he says, but... When he, God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal Jesus to me, his son to me. And and he goes on. There's uh, two glaring things we learn about salvation here that are not just true for Paul. I mean, some aspects of Paul's story are a bit unique. I mentioned that two weeks ago. As we look at his story, when he says, no one taught me the gospel, it was just kind of revealed. That's not normal. And so that's one aspect of his story that's, uh, that's a little bit unique, is, is Paul, a direct divine revelation. But there's a lot of his story that is still paradigmatic of what we, what we experience. And this is a part of this. This is true for us as well. When God set me apart before I was born, what he's saying here is before I was born, God delighted in the idea of me. He intended to create me. He loved me even then. 
And he knew that I would fall away, but he knew how he would save me, and he knew he would. And not just that he would save me, but he would call me to this, this place of being an apostle, this pastor type, this individual who would receive special inspiration to write half the New Testament, to bring the gospel to parts of the world where it's very hostile to these Gentiles and, and beyond. All that was, was predetermined. And he who called me by, by his grace. So, again, I want to invite you guys, I invited myself to this, I want to invite you guys to seriously try to leave your baggage at the door. Whatever you thought was, was true about God, thought was true about your conversion, try to leave that behind. Maybe it was true, maybe there was some baggage there that wasn't totally accurate, and receive this, because this is true for you and me as well. Let these things sink in. The same Christ who saved Paul in this manner has also saved you and me in this manner. Set apart before birth for salvation. Called by grace, meaning not called by how amazing you and I are. Not called by good works. Not called by performance. Not called by repentance. You know, pre-salvation repentance or turning from our old ways. That's, that's later. And not called by any of that. By how well we prayed or fasted. Not called by how well we loved others, but called simply by grace. That means undeserved merit. That is to say, it's given. The opposite of earned. Called by his love and grace and revealed Jesus. All of that is the implication that grace has for us in how we understand our salvation and, and why we're Christians at all right now. Yes, that should humble us. Yes, that should give us joy. It should be both. It should, it should offend. This is why Paul says, remember later, last week I mentioned this, there is an offense to the cross. If the cross isn't offensive, we're not doing it right. We're not talking about it right. It needs to trip us up. It needs to say to everything that we've done that, that we formerly thought was to our benefit on our spiritual resume, it, it, it addresses that in kind of a ripping it up manner. It says, it says um, not good enough or... Um, unnecessary or um, unneeded. And in its place, we have Christ who's hanging there on a cross who is this ultimate image of God's love for us when he died for us in our place. But that's a gift as well. And so Paul's looking at that and saying, if that's true, if that's the gospel, then God must have always, if God saves me alone, then God must have always intended this. And as we've said before here too, we need to resist the implication, or the, sorry, the temptation here to over-philosophize these kinds of things. This, this does not mean we don't have real choices or that we're robots. It, this does not cheapen the human experience with Christ. It should heighten it. It means God is very involved in our lives. God is wanting to be involved in our lives, and he is wanting to specifically save you guys. That's what this means. God want, wants to specifically save you by name. That's the implication that this has, which is incredibly good news. Not an idea he holds out like a carrot and hopes, in hopes that you grab it, but instead invades your heart so that it will matter and be beautiful and you know, kind of complete what he began before, before time began in intending that you would receive the gospel someday. Otherwise, what in the world is he meaning here? What in the world? Is this true just for Paul? He doesn't say that. 
Never says that. Is Paul a, a worse sinner than us? You know, he is a human being like us. God is so much saving people uh, that he is uh, predetermining and intending and working uh, through our choices and others' ministry efforts uh, to empower those things and make those things matter to us so that we might be saved. And then also look at here, too, what it says, that salvation's pleasing to God. So God is not mechanically doing this for us, but it's flowing from his joy in saving sinners. He, he wants to reveal his grace to us so that we might believe. And notice this tells us what pleases God. If you've ever wondered that on any level in your life, it's a great question. What makes God happy? What pleases him? What, maybe you th- maybe you're thinking from this perspective of what can I do? Well, this is telling us what makes God happy, what pleases him. What pleases God is him revealing Jesus to you. What makes him happy is giving the gift of salvation to you. Do you see that? It pleased God. It made him happy. It gave him joy to reveal his amazingness to you. See how freeing that is? Notice notice what this is not saying. It's not saying what's pleasing to God is that you work really hard to make him happy. Be free of that hellish doctrine. It's not what the Bible says. Our works aren't even in play here. There's nothing from us. What's making God happy, what's pleasing him is his own act of giving salvation to sinners, which is completely 100% his gift to give. He's, he's more like a father or a, like a mother or parent here who's giving a gift to his or her child. That's what he's like. A father delighting in giving versus receiving. That's why Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive because he's the son of God and, and, and he, he's authoritative to teach that. He's, he knows it's more blessed to give than receive. It's, it's happier for us to give than receive because that, that gives us a glimpse at the heart of God. God's not saying, it's more important for me to receive from you, serve me, give to me. That's not the gospel. And that's why Jesus teaches more blessed to give because, because God is a giver, not a receiver. So be free in that, you guys. There's not, most of you know this, or maybe some of you, some of you have never heard this before. There's nothing you can give to God to repay him for his grace to you. This is what the book of Romans says. There's nothing you can give. Nothing you, you can't pay him back. He's not asking that. So stop trying. And instead receive the gift of his son as a free offer of, of, of salvation to those who, who want it, who, who know their need, who want to see God's face, who want to live forever why Jesus rose, because death's a part of this as well. But, but again, uh, death being overcome. Salvation is passive to us. Those are the two things. Salva- this, this says salvation is completely passive to us. It's not an active thing. Active to God, passive to us. And salvation is pleasing to God. He wants to do this. So I would ask you this question before we move on to the second thing. Is this the way you think about your conversion experience? When you think about why you're saved, uh, and some of you aren't Christians yet, uh, you can still think in these terms about how we're saved. Now, the point here is not to be apathetic and to say, well, why, why try anything? Why try to believe the gospel at all? Why try to read this book if we're just puppets? Notice, he never, the Bible never goes to that you know, unnecessary, human-based philosophical end. 
That's not where we're supposed to go. We're supposed to go there for our joy. And to hold up Jesus as high as we can, saying, isn't he incredible? Isn't the cross necessary and amazing? Uh, And so as we do that, our joy really is at stake here. Is this the way you think about your conversion experience and your daily life as a believer? If not, why? What's your basis for thinking this isn't true? And that's a broad question. I'll just leave it hanging there because there could be a lot of reasons for that. But what's your basis for believing that this didn't happen to you? Behind the curtain, so to speak, of the circumstances that described how you came to be a Christian. Our joy is at stake. And remember, Paul is bringing all this up to argue to these Galatian Christians more for, this is pro-grace, this is against works. And so when he says something like, before I was born, I was set apart, the reason why he's saying this is, one, it's true, but two, how in the world could we think that works at all save us if that's true? You guys see how those, those things relate? If, if it's true that we're set apart before we're born, then how, how could we ever think, how could we ever bring works and what we do into the equation? It doesn't make a lot of sense, philosophically, logically, or theologically. And again, so he writes. This is for the sake of arguing for the faith. It's a Christian apologetic, but it's for our joy as well. And so we might also think this way when we think about God, that we might be happy in him and actually feel love. Not that it's just an idea, but that it, it, is, it is the gospel. The second thing here is the context. Spend a little bit more time here in Acts 15. So um, let me read verses 3 again and following. The, the context is meeting with the apostles and bringing an uncircumcised Titus with him. So verse 3 says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So, what I want to do here is, is there is a, um, I've used this word a lot today already, but a, a corroborating narrative in the book of Acts uh, that gives us a glimpse into the background here, uh, more on, what, on when Paul comes to Jerusalem and kind of what's going on theologically in the churches of the first century that relates to Galatia. And there's disagreement here on whether it, so when, when Paul goes to Jerusalem, uh, that's the it, refers to this passing reference in Acts chapter 11, or a larger narrative in Acts 15. But in the end, it doesn't really matter because the issue is the same. And that is, Gentiles were being saved. This is one of the, the glorious but kind of complicated issues in the first century is that all the first Christians were Jewish, but then all of a sudden these non-Jewish Christians started popping up. They're believing the gospel. There's, there's no more kind of disparity and partiality uh, between ethnically anymore. It's just, it's for all people. And But these first Jewish leader Christian types, these apostles, are wrestling with this. And there's people that don't understand or they have ill motive and they're seeping into the churches kind of teaching wrong things to Gentiles that put them back into slavery, as he says here, doctrinally. And so one big issue then specifically Jewish Christians or these apostles had to wrestle with is on Gentiles' behalf or non-Jews' behalf, Christians' behalf, and theirs, what Old Testament laws continue into this New Testament era now that grace and faith in Christ has come. 
Things are a bit different. And so one of the, one of the issues, this kind of sets it up in Acts 15.5. Some Jewish believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. These are, so these are Jewish Christians and said, it is necessary to circumcise Gentile Christians and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This is an actual thing in the first century. This is, again, background stuff here. It's necessary, it's required to circumcise Gentile, male Gentile Christians, but then to require all to keep the law of Moses. So one of the things you see here is that the issue in the first century was, was not just about circumcision. The issue in the Galatian church was not just Jesus plus circumcision. It was Jesus plus the whole of the Old Testament law that was commanded for Israel to keep for a time. So that would include cleanliness laws, kosher food laws, and even moral laws, like the Ten Commandments. And so this helps kind of inform what's going on in Galatia. Jesus' grace is being added to by people, and we see it here narratively as well, not just in letter form, like we're reading in, in Galatia. So it's a long chapter. I want to encourage you guys to go and read it uh, on your own this week. We don't have time to read through all of it, but I want to read a few excerpts from Acts 15 that tells us what the apostles and elders, and Paul's here at this time, decided in regards to this question. And so first Peter, who's also called Cephas, stands up and says in this council of sorts, it's gathering to address this fault, this teaching, these Jewish believers who are saying this, he says to these people requiring the law of Moses to be kept, all the law, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Preach. But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. We will be saved uh, through Christ, just as they will. Then James, another one of the apostles, stands up and uses similar language, but he says, my judgment is that we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. So notice that the law here is talked about in troubling language. It's, it's a troublesome thing to require laws to be kept. It is a burden to require laws to be kept. They're using burdensome, troubling language here, uh, not joy-filled, freeing language, because it doesn't free, it doesn't give joy. Only Christ does that. And so the final decision that they arrive to, skipping ahead, that they put in letter form, so they meet as a council, and they write this letter out to these Gentile Christians, send it to them, is this. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. I like that ending. Farewell. Good luck to you. Um, so here's what's going on. The, and this may seem strange, and it is strange. I'll explain some of this as to why they're including some of these food laws in a second. But this is what's going on. This is the council's chance, their opportunity formally to sift through the entire Old Testament and say, what are we going to require for Christians? This is the question. Some are saying circumcision and to keep the, the whole law of Moses. What are we going to say as the apostles? Let's flip through this whole thing. Moral laws, food laws, kosher laws, civil laws, sacrificial laws. And to put that formally down in writing and to send it to these Gentile churches that are receiving this false teaching and, and feeling burdened by it. Not, I mean, as you can imagine, these poor guys, you know, it's like circumcision. I don't want to get circumcised, as you can imagine. Uh, but it's not just that. It's the burden of, of requiring 
obedience, the burden of requiring law-keeping, a standard of righteousness that comes through what you and I have to give to God as the Old Testament prescribes for a time that leads us to, to Christ. So this is, this is what they came up with. Really, it's just two things. It's one, abstain from food that's been sacrificed to idols, the blood of meat from the meat that's been strangled. That's kind of one thing together. And two, abstain from sexual immorality. That's really it. The first issue has to do with food. And what they're saying here is, it's kind of complicated, but he's saying, for the sake of your Jewish brothers who are troubled over eating certain types of meat, because the Old Testament did uh, instruct not to eat these types of meat, for the sake of, this is one of the reasons why it said that, it was for the sake of treating as sacred part of how God would atone for sins. Blood was an important thing in the Old Testament. So as a part of treating blood as sacred, they weren't to eat it. But now that Christ is here, the ultimate lamb, the ultimate blood spiller, the end, the end of the food laws has kind of arrived. Now, now Jesus says you can eat whatever you want in Mark 7. Nothing's unclean that comes from outside of you. It can't make you unclean. Just, just what comes from within you sins. And so he kind of goes on with the argument there. But. So the first thing is he's not saying it's actually you're under these laws of not being able to eat you know, bloody meat. So we can eat blood sausage to our heart's content if that's your thing. You can do that. Uh, He's not saying you're actually under this. He's saying, for the sake of your Jewish brothers who might be bothered by you eating, just don't do it. It's just not worth it. Love them. Love them by abstaining from it. So if you've heard of the um, the, the, kind of the weaker brother argument, this is the first weaker brother argument that you have in the Bible that comes up in those, that's hypo-language later. So if you don't, don't worry about it. But there, there are weaker perspectives on these things, less mature in Christ things that the stronger are called to just kind of, you know what, I'm free to eat and to do these things, but since they're bothered by it, my Christian brothers and sisters, I'm just not going to do it. That comes up more fully in 1 Corinthians 8-10 to and other places like that, Romans 14 and places like that in the Bible. So this is the first one of those. So he's actually saying, you're not under it, but just basically just love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the second, has more, the second issue has more obviously to do with the importance of marriage and addresses the rampant sexual sin that was part of Gentile culture. Okay, but here again, that's it. Love your Christian brothers and sisters and abstain from sexual sin and honor marriage. Does that strike anyone else as kind of a short list? It's kind of short, right? I mean, where are the Ten Commandments, for crying out loud? And they, they kind of allude to the seventh, don't commit adultery, but where's, where's the rest of them? Where's the Sabbath? Where's love God, love people, if that's the center of the faith? Where in the world is that, as we talked about last week? Rather, these are the two things. Get along with your Christian brothers and sisters who are different than you, love them, and abstain from sexual immorality and honor marriage. All under the umbrella of being free in Christ, because he gives you everything. His body, his blood, his love, his grace. That's it. And so they want to write to the Gentiles to say, don't listen to these types of teachings. Instead, receive our letter. And so, look at what it actually says here in in Acts 15. Oh, I went way ahead here, didn't I? There we go. Um, Actually, I don't have it. Never mind. Uh, Write this down. Check it out later. In Acts 15, 31, um, it says, when the Gentile Christians received the letter... Listen to this. It says, when they had read it, they rejoiced 
because of its encouragement. When the Gentiles got this letter, this decision from these Jewish Christians saying, this is really basically it from the Old Testament, which is basically nothing, basically just believe the gospel and the grace of Christ and, and love people and honor marriage. And when, when they receive that, they're happy because it's not about you and me and doing. There's no burden of the law and being good on our own. There's no condition wrapped up with it, but simply Christ and these couple of simple things. Because grace is encouraging, right? Freedom from the law should be encouraging. Uh, they would not have rejoiced if the letter said, Jesus' grace is good, but you also need to be circumcised, men, and to also keep all of these Old Testament laws in order to be saved. That would be, according to Peter, a burden that they couldn't bear. A burden that they couldn't keep the law. So Peter's saying, we couldn't keep them. Why would we add them to these Gentiles being saved? The point was not to keep them. We couldn't. We can't be good. That's how they led us to Christ who is good for us. Why would we reverse this thing so much? You know, and all the apostles agree. And so in agreement, they write this letter. And they send it to the churches. And it's in our Bible, which is super cool. You know, this isn't some like church history book. This is the Bible. And so we know this first church council meets to address these things that we wrestle with today in the church. Grace and works. How do they go together? What Old Testament laws still apply and all that stuff? And so, again, the burden of doing and working has been passed, and in its place, Jesus bears it. The, the, the last place you see grace over works here in this, uh, well, this second section, I guess, uh, is how the apostles rejoiced in God over Paul. So a couple of things here before we close. Uh, and that is, in verse 24, they glorified God because of me. And so, what's striking about this for me uh, hopefully for all of you, is that there's no hint of jealousy or anger or bitterness in the hearts of these apostles who didn't kill Christians like Paul did. But no hint of jealousy over Paul's calling and the fact that he's saved at all. Isn't that crazy? You know, th th this is where it would be, a, this is the perfect time for the apostles to say, this guy, you know, you can be our young Padawan for a while, but you have to like work yourself up to being a New Testament biblical author. You know, here, perfect place to do it. As he comes, like, just kind of storms into, their, into Jerusalem, kind of their home turf. This is how pride and sin would come in and say, what? You? Really? But this is where grace sweeps in and says, not by works, but by God's call. If it is before we were born, it's been self-determined. All of our salvation. How can we have pride over that? How, how, can, how can we say to God, bad choice? Sometimes the worst people are chosen to underline this gospel idea. Jesus saves, we don't. So not only are the worst people saved, but they're given ministries and blessings they don't deserve. That might even exceed ours. People that we think are less than us, even though they're not, we might think that. So just think about it this way. What would you think if someone who had killed your parents was saved? What would you think? Someone who killed your parents, or maybe one of your kids, what if they were saved from their sins? They, they came to Christ with the same gospel you did. And, and not only that, but what if they were called to pastor a church before you were? 
whoa, you know? That'd be re- wouldn't that be really hard? That'd be really hard for me. Wouldn't that be really hard to reckon with? But you see how grace speaks to that idea? This is actually what they're going through. Paul killed people that they probably knew, these apostles. And they're just accepting him. Not jealous, not envious, not challenging. The apostles here are clearly men grounded in and fluent in grace. They rejoice over Paul's conversion and his ministry calling, and they don't think, oh, that should be me, or he doesn't deserve this. And that's the point. He doesn't. He was given it like they were, like we are, so none can boast. If it were about works, if other things were required besides Jesus' power and grace and choice for us to be saved, then it makes no sense that Paul would be saved, but also it makes no sense the apostles wouldn't be angry or jealous. Because works, the idea of works lead us, leads us to competitiveness and to looking down on people who don't measure up to our standards and anger. And so I just want to leave that uh, with you guys. There's so much to summarize here, but we're out of time. So let me just leave you with that. Grace, and we'll look at this more next week. Grace really will change your life. Not just when your status before a holy God who will save you through your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, but it will also give you the power, like nothing else in this world, to be humble towards other people that you don't think deserve things as much as you do. It's the only power there is. Our story in thinking, I deserve nothing, will give you the, the freedom to be humble. It's not the command, be humble, Christian. It's a gospel-invaded heart. If Paul's story really is indicative of your and mine, it's impossible to boast. It's impossible to say, that should be me. There will be things flipped on its head. There will be people here at this church who, are, who rise up to leadership really quickly. You know, past those of you who've been around for 10 years, and you might think, wait a minute, I've been here 10 years. But grace destroys that thought. It destroys it because it's not about time and proving it and, you know, work. It's about God's call, God's intent, God's love, God's grace, God's giving of himself for us on that cross 2,000 years ago, spilling over like a beautiful, overflowing cup into every single aspect of our lives, changing the very way we think about others, about ourselves, and about God. Let's pray.